Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hector Garcia and Francesc Morales are the co-authors of the runaway international best-selling book titled Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. I've been dying to get these guys on the show, so I am so excited they're finally here. Hector and Francesc, welcome. Thank you very much. We are very happy to be here, Jason. Thank you. It, it's such an honor, you know, and the subtitles, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. And look, the Japanese do have a secret indeed when it comes to longevity. You know, as you mentioned in the book, according to the WHO, Japan is the highest life expectancy in the world with women coming in at 87, men at 85, and has the highest ratio of centenarians in the world. We can't compare that to the US today, life expectancy at 79 and 73 for women and men. They're kind of kicking our butt. So uh, a lot to learn. And I, I'd love to start with the title, Ikigai. Let's talk about what is Ikigai and let's talk about the inspiration behind this book. Ikigai is a, a Japanese word, which means it's a way of, I like to say that it's a way of compressing meaning. In English or in Spanish, you have to say the meaning of life or my purpose in life. And you need several words to, to say this. It's like raison d'être in France in French. In Japanese, they have just one word, which is ikigai. You can say to your friends or to your kids, what's your ikigai? It's much easier, much more simple than to say, what is your meaning in life? And it's composed of two characters, that it's iki and gai. And it, the first one means life. And guy means uh, worthwhile. So it literally means to make your life worthwhile in living. And I came to Japan now 18 years ago. And learning Japanese is a, it's a whole experience. And there were always these words, mysterious words that you could almost not translate. And I was always attracted to these types of words. And one of them was Ikigai. And when I learned it, it always stayed in my heart. And I didn't know what to do about it. I was just telling the word to people because I thought, okay, this is a word that should be in every language. Not only, it shouldn't be a secret just for Japanese people. It should be useful for everyone. And at certain, that maybe, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, Frances came to Tokyo, more than 10 years ago. And we met, we became friends. And of course, in conversation, I started talking about this word to Francesc. And that's uh, immediately Frances said, we have to write a book about this word. And that's the story of how we started. And to summarize today, you're, you're still in Tokyo on Francesc, you're in Spain. Yes, I've been living in Barcelona my whole life, but I have traveled to Japan maybe 10 times and most of them with Hector traveling to different places like Okinawa. And this was the beginning of the book actually was a, <clears throat> a field work as anthropologists. We traveled to Ogimi, that is a little village north of Okinawa with the highest rate of centenarians every 1,000 inhabitants. And this was the beginning of the book, a, a trip to interview the eldest people there and then learning how they live, how they relate, relate each other, what they eat, how are they moving, uh, and what are their ikigais to. So let's talk a little bit about the village of longevity you know, in Okinawa. And some of the things you've learned, I, I thought it was so interesting. You, you actually, in one of your chapters, profile super centenarians, those living 110 plus. And so let, let's start there. The, the 110 plus crowd, you, you conducted all these interviews. What, what did you learn from these people? What were they doing? 
that's a very good you the, the question you said like what were they doing the the main point is that they were doing things they were active in a way that it's it's in the subtle of course we also are very we we don't say it was like paradise when you are 110 years old uh, it's nature uh, does things to you so it's it's difficult uh, there were also ill people and we were you see many things but the percentage the the way to see it is like i didn't see when i see all people in all in villages in spain for example there is much less activity in ogimi there were always active moving from one place to another we saw people like you said like 110 years old gardening so they grow their own vegetables and a general sense of community like everyone literally everyone belonged to something called moai and those moais are cataloged in the in the city hall there are 3800 people in ogimi when we went there and the way the the, the way they, they are organized in these moais is because they don't want people to feel alone or lonely you always you always feel like part of a family because like some we met some people they had like i don't know 60 how do you say grand grandchilds so they had big families and they feel loved but some other people they they are not that lucky and maybe they're 100 years old and they don't they don't have a family so they have to their way to connect to other people is through the moai and that's something that it gave us a lot of thinking about how we live in cities these days in the modern world and how maybe when you become older we are uh, feeling lonely or even not that old like you are feeling lonely because you are not part of something you you don't have a family or you don't have a uh, people to to hang out with so we found those those things in ogimi like very active people and very close communities and families you know b- before we get to the the food piece of this which i know everyone is dying to hear about i want to spend a little time on this the power of irl connection and you know to illustrate that point a quote stood out to me from a woman you interviewed named yuki who says, you know, doesn't really eat in restaurants, tries to eat only from her garden, but then quickly pivots to, quote, food won't help you live longer. The secret is smiling and having a good time. So what, what do you think about that statement? I think it's, it's very important, your attitude. Something that we observed there in, in Ogimi was that social relationships were extremely important, much more than they are in Barcelona, in United States, any other place, because the way they treat each other is not like neighbors. It's not like friends. They treat each other like family. And actually, they have a clan mentality. And this is uh, very easy to see in these moais, in these circles. And so it's a relationship of brothers and sisters, even when they are not uh, connected by blood. So it helps them a lot to feel themselves protected and also to feel responsible for the happiness of the others. And we think that this, this is a very important point of the, the key of longevity. And actually, uh, there is a, an Okinawan saying that Hector can tell in the exact words that means... Yes, and the translation is... <laughs> it's okay like francis will explain the meaning it's more interesting this it, it means once we have gathered around the table we are all brothers and sisters and this is very important i think in in the well-being of this community yes it's it's a way of thinking this is not only in ogimi it's in okinawa this saying and it's to welcome even if you're a foreigner visiting okinawa 
in the moment you meet, you are already part of uh, the family. So, and the way you should treat a foreigner should be at the same level of uh, someone in the family. You are like welcome, very welcoming people. So, something you said early on in this in this interview was you got to keep doing things, and I'm going to bring it back to the title of Ikagai. And in the book, you know, there, there's this Venn diagram, if you will, to, to to zoom out a bit. So, you know, you've got passion, mission, profession, vocation. And then you've got what you love, what can you be paid for, what you're good at, what the world needs. There's a lot to unpack there, but I love at the highest level, you're bringing this back to, to purpose and and being active, not necessarily physically, although that, that is important too, but, but mentally. So let's talk about that Venn diagram. The, the diagram or, or being active and never retiring? I, I, I think the, the diagram and also being active mentally. Okay. I, I will talk about being active, and Hector will explain the diagram. Actually, this is something very Japanese. The, the idea of uh, retirement is uh, very uh, hostile for them. They like to be useful to society. They like to be active. And because of that, when even when they are finishing their uh, labor years, let's say that, they find another activity so that they can be still uh, useful to society. And I have traveled a, a lot in Japan. And when you go to little villages in the mountains, in Nagano, in these places, you find a lot of volunteers that are over 70 years old, 80, that they want to work as a guide, uh, showing the buses, showing uh, maps. And they are there for free because for a Japanese mentality, if uh, if you don't play a role in society, you are dead. Because of that, uh, one of the key points of Ikigai that we put in the end is never retire. And especially, never retire from what you love to do. Uh, now, since we published the book, now there are more and more studies that show that when people, especially, I don't know much about a U.S. culture, but in Spain and in Europe, we love the concept of retiring. We love the concept of, okay, I'm going to be 60 years old and I'm going to get money from the government and I will do nothing and I will drink cocktails in the beach. And do. And, and there are more and more studies that there is a huge correlation between retirement and having a very like life-threatening illness like cancer and things like that just after you retire in the years after you retire once you move ahead of that the chances of dying are it, it goes to less it's very mysterious and it's correlated with this sense of what francis said like feeling as humans we need to feel useful and if you do nothing and you start like totally retire and you are not useful to anyone, then that's that you, you kind of, you feel it in your biology and it's like, okay, I don't need to be alive anymore. Your sense of meaning, go, meaning of goes away. So that's why we, we mean with uh, not retiring. And going into the, so the circles, there are many layers. In fact, we, we wrote a second book called The Ikigai Journey, in which we go very deep into the meaning of the four circles. I'm going to describe them the way I think about it. If you want, it's an exercise, it's a good exercise. Many listeners will be thinking now, okay, what? Is, some listeners will say, okay, I totally know what my Ikigai is. It's been this my whole life, and I'm very happy. I know the meaning of my life. But usually, that's not how it happens. Many times, your Ikigai can change through life, depending on the stage you are in your life. And we feel the most happy when we are connected with our Ikigai in a certain stage of life. 
and we feel the most unhappy when we are desynchronized, when we keep doing things uh, just because of habit. We keep living like we are in our 20s and we are in our 40s. And maybe in our 40s, our ikigai should be our family. In our 20s was something else. So recognizing what is your ikigai at a certain stage of life will help you to, okay, align things. And these four circles will help you think about it. What is your ikigai? The first one we can start is like uh, what you love doing. And what you love doing is, I think, is the easiest. Like you can think, okay, I love watching the sunset while enjoying a nice conversation with friends. I love uh, listening to music. I love this, this. You can list that down. The second circle is what you are good at. This is not so easy. If you like to introspect about what you are good at, sometimes we are good at things that we think because people tell us that we are good at them and then we get used to it and then we keep doing more of that. While if someone tells us that we are bad at something, we will stop doing that. And those things can stay, start from your childhood when they tell you, you are not good at math. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's also a good one to explore. Like, okay, maybe I'm good at this, but I'm not getting praise. So you can also list down things that you might be good at, but you've never explored. You have this thinking, okay, I think I could be good at this, but I've never explored it. And that will give you a way to to find something there. Then uh, the easiest one, but also the most difficult one is the money. So if you want to keep doing something, you have to find a way to make money from it. That might be easy or more difficult, depending on what you like doing or what you're good at, then you, you, you're going to start finding an intersection. And for the money one, I think you can, these days with the internet, you can always start the small. And once you start being very good at something, and then money will start coming to you. It sounds like magic, but I think it's, you have to be very patient and become very good at something. And the last one is to do something for like, it's like helping the world, but in reality, what we're saying, even if you help, if you even if you say something nice to your neighbor or to a friend that needs to listen some nice words from you, the idea is that kindness spreads over the world. So if you are doing everyday things that are helping others, that will connect everything. So if you are doing things that you love, that you are good at, you can make money with, and you are helping others, that's like, it's like kind of perfect. That's what we mean with the four circles. And that's where you, if you start exploring those circles, you will start having a sense, okay, my ikigai is... Uh, for example, for me, would be my ikigai is writing because I think I'm kind of good at it. I can make money from it and I can inspire people to become better better persons in the world. So it, in a good ikigai sentence, you have to include all the four circles. If you just say my ikigai is writing, that's not good enough. You have to think deeper. And so how critical is, is the money piece? Because I'm going to reference, you know, you talked about this culture of retiring. And that, that is absolutely true here in, in the U.S., where there's this, this idea of I'm going to work hard, I'm going to save enough, and then I'm going to go to the beach or play golf and drink cocktails. And you also have this cultural phenomenon right now of what, what we call quiet quitting. And essentially what that means is people 
you know, doing their job, doing the bare minimum, but they're not quitting, especially in, in, in a world where so many people are working remotely, it's easier to do, to kind of phone it in, so to speak. So you have people just kind of showing up, doing the bare minimum and sliding by. I, I don't think this is a new thing. I think it's been going on for quite some time, but I think it's much easier to do in a remote first world. So with all that said, look, I think there are people out there who, you know, they have bills to pay. They have, you know, kids, they have a family to support, and they're not necessarily passionate about their job. It is a means to an end in terms of providing for their family, and there's nothing wrong with that. And so I want to bring it back to this idea of, 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 of purpose and finding it outside of your, 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 your work. You know, you mentioned maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's a child this idea of, of how it changes in different phases of our life. So I want to spend a moment there. And what's your advice to someone who's, you know, who's in that situation? Yes. Uh, I don't think that it's necessary to have only one Ikigai and put all your time and your energy there. You can share different aspects of your life. You can even have two or three Ikigais at the same time. Imagine that you have a profession that you love very much. For instance, you are a teacher and you love teaching and you are in the mornings doing that. This is an Ikigai. But you love also writing and you have a project. And in the afternoons and in the evenings, you are writing and this is a second Ikigai. And then you become father and you have a baby and the baby will be also an Ikigai. So these different Ikigais will move. One will be more important than the other, depending on every time and even you can have a passion, you can have a, an Ikigai and you can lose it because after some years doing that, you can feel exhausted, you can feel that you have done everything you had to do. And it happens to many people. For myself, I was teacher during four or five years in my life and then I discovered that I was not passionate enough, that there were people who could do that until retirement and that for me, it was a problem repeating every every year the, the same subject, the same things. So I didn't have enough vocation. So Ikigai actually is dynamic because it can change with the years. And sometimes you can have only one big Ikigai and sometimes you have two. With Hector, we put uh, often the, the example of Franz Kafka, that in the mornings he was a lawyer in an insurance company. In the afternoons, he, he was a writer and he found not only a balance between both worlds, but his work as a lawyer gave him inspiration to, uh, to write works like The Process. Without the, these uh, experiences he had as a lawyer, he couldn't have written the other side. I love the example of Kafka. If you have a, maybe people are thinking, okay, yes, this sounds very nice, but as you said, I have to pay the bills and I don't really like my job. So you can, you can change a little bit the mindset. I believe that in every job or almost every job, maybe not all of them, if it's really, really bad, like maybe you should try to find something else. But usually you can find something good or something that, okay, unexpectedly, you you like maybe your your job is doing something but you find that 10 10% 20% of what you're doing is uh, being in meetings with people and you really enjoy those meetings and maybe you enjoy the meetings that are about sales and okay then you can start asking to do more of those things and maybe you become a salesman and that's the moment that okay you're really happy because you're always doing what you love in my case it was different i hated being in meetings when i were i worked as a software engineer so i always kept asking to do things that were like just building software so i don't have to be in meetings and that suddenly i was more and more happy with my work so you can always find ways to to so that's what we mean with ikigai like it's not like there is something like a silver bullet that will solve everything but you can start finding modes of ways of being that you are more happy 
like for example, Frances, it seems like he didn't like teaching. So he's like, okay, now I'm going to write books. <laughs> yes, but it's very important what Hector says, because even in the most simple jobs, you can find a meaning. When I was a student in university, I was always working as a waiter. And I worked first in a in a tavern of the center of Barcelona, but in the summers I was always working in camping and in the bar of the campings. And in one of these places, there were a lot of old people who came alone with the caravan, with the roulotte, and they were three, four months there. And I was in the first shift in the morning and I was receiving from the bar to the lonely people, uh, these people who were many months alone, maybe they had some friends there, and at 7 o'clock you were responsible for the first interaction of the day with this person. And then in that position, I understood that every person who would come to the bar, being we alone there, I had three options to take. I could uh, treat this person with neutrality, and so this person, after the coffee, will go back exactly as he or she come, came. I can treat this person bad and make him or her angry, or I can be kind and make a joke, remember something that this person told me the day before, and I give him or her a bit of happiness. So even something so simple as serving a coffee, you are influencing the happiness of other people. And for me, it was a great motivation. I enjoyed a lot my work as a waiter because of that. And, and that can have a butterfly effect. Maybe you make that person happy many, many times, and then that person will go into the world and maybe make a music bands and become famous. And it's all because you were nice to this person, giving nice coffees in the mornings. So you never have to underestimate the power of simple kindness. A hundred percent agree that the power of smiling or, or saying good morning uh, to, to a stranger on the street, if you're going for a morning walk or commute. And to me, I'm going to, I'm going to, to me, it, it really speaks to, to mindset and attitude. And you reference a study by Yeshiva that found that people who live the longest have a positive attitude, high degree of emotional awareness, not, not surprising there. And I'm going to go to our stuff. You know, we, we all have our stuff. We all have our crap. We all have our issues. And many of us need, you know, therapy. Therapy is a good thing. But what I thought was so interesting is specifically you talk about logotherapy and Marita therapy. Can you talk about logotherapy and Marita therapy and how it differs from you know, traditional therapy that we're used to? I will explain a bit of logotherapy and maybe Hector can explain who was Shoma Morita a little bit also. Uh, logotherapy, if we see the name, it's the therapy of meaning, logos. And it was a different approach, totally different from psychoanalysis, from a doctor in Vienna also, in Wien, that uh, what he was seeing was that after Second World War, the cases who came in consultation were so dramatic because people have, so, have lost uh, brothers, sisters, businesses, houses. So they, they had lost everything. So the, the, the thing was not to explore the past of the passion, was to explore what to do tomorrow, to find a reason not to commit suicide. Because of that, the, the logotherapy of Viktor Frankl is totally focused in finding a meaning so that even if you're present situation is very negative, you have a little illusion that can be a kind of engine to go on during the day. So so th this is a logotherapy. And even these people who came totally desperate and didn't find in the beginning something that they could call a purpose, even to them, uh, Viktor Frankl was saying, if you don't have a purpose, pursuing your purpose it's already a purpose. So if you are looking for a purpose, it's already uh, a, a matter of meaning. So you are already on, on the way. And maybe Hector can 
complement a little bit with Shoma Morita. Yeah, yes. So, so Shoma Morita is totally different from Logothero. He's a Japanese uh, philosopher that he had a way of treating his patients in a way that you would like kind of disconnect from the world. We are overestimulated. This was before the internet. So he created uh, a way to do the Morita therapy. There's some centers in Japan that they still do the Morita therapy. You have to be in a locked room for, uh, I forgot now, I have to reread the book. It's uh, at least one week. You have to be in a room closed uh, without any contact with the world. And after that, there is a reintroduction to the world, but in a very slow way. You have to do activities in a forest, um, a, being in nature, basically, and doing uh, meditation. It's kind of like uh, Zen meditation. So it's a way of like resetting uh, the human mind and body. Like, that's what Shoma Morita introduced that's intense Intense. i know i've i haven't done it but i've told with japanese people who had done it and it's very intense the way they they explain it to me is like they they say the way they told me like it was nice to do it once but i wouldn't want to ever do it again that, that is too intense so i'm going to bring it back to those the, the hundred interviews you did in that in that village where you were trying to identify their longevity secret sauce if you will and, and you share these five tent poles in the book so you know don't worry cultivate good habits nurture your friendships every day live an unhurried life be optimistic uh you also go on to say that a hundred hundred percent of these people have a vegetable garden which i thought was fascinating so walk us through these tent bowls and maybe some other commonalities that really stood out to you with this group. Yeah, so we put together what we thought. We interviewed more than 100 people when we were there. And we, at the end, we put together what we thought like the, the commonalities. We put together in the, in the rules, rules of Ikigai. And one, they, they sound very simple. But we think that in the simplicities, in the magic, and you one is the the one you said the smile. Another one is harahachibu, which which means uh, in Japanese that you eat until you are eighty percent full, and then you stop eating. Uh, usually, in in Spain, we do the reverse. We eat to a hundred percent. And then we eat twenty percent of dessert, so it's one hundred and twenty. So, <laughs> so here is the. Uh, this is a Japanese saying. It's in general, and they say it a lot in Okinawa. And you notice if you ever come travel to Japan, you will notice. You you will say, okay, how how do I practice this in my in my daily life? Uh, you notice in Japan that the way they present the food in restaurants and in homes is very difficult to overeat because the, the dishes are very small. There's lots of variety and the dishes are very small. So almost from the like the way you look, it looks like a lot of food because they are in many dishes, but in reality you are not eating as much as if you put a big dish with a huge pasta or a huge uh, pizza. So I think that's one of the secrets or very, very simple things that you can introduce in your home. You can change the, like, buy smaller dishes and arrange them so it will make you start eating less, like by using, or when you go to a restaurant, like when you're feeling 80%, you stop eating. This is more difficult, but you can also start practicing. I think that's an important point, eating the 80% full. And, you know, I'll cut to the chase, you know, purpose, IRL connection, friendship, great. But 
my guess is many of our listeners are really interested in right now is what these people ate and drank or what they eat and drink currently. So could you talk a little bit more specifically about what you call the Okinawa miracle diet? You know, how, how are they eating? And, and, and this is so critical because in, in Okinawa, they have the lowest rate of cardiovascular disease in Japan. So what exactly are they eating? Maybe Hector that has family in Okinawa. Yeah, my family. I'm married with a. Yeah, I have I'm married with a uh, Okinawan woman. Uh, so I've been eating Okinawan food for a long time. I, I don't, and I still don't have. It's very difficult. Maybe it's because I'm becoming a little bit Okinawan. It's very difficult to pinpoint when we ask them. They they don't think there is any secret. Because I think when you ask someone, because you are inside, I always think of the analogy of the fish. If you are inside the sea, the sea, you you cannot see the. If you don't go outside, you cannot see the the sea, the, your own culture. So you don't really understand your own diet. If you are in a Mediterranean like Francesca and me, you don't really you eat, and so people say that the Mediterranean. Diet is good, but you are not very aware. You're just eating what's around you and what is served to you, and you get used to that. And that's what we got from Okinawa. Like by asking them, they will say, Oh, no, I'm not doing anything special. Or like the one you said before, like there are other things that are more special. Now, when you start observing, like, okay, how are these people eating? Uh, so the main one, that's why we compressed. The main one is what I already said, like the quantity, it's always much, much less than anywhere else. And then what they are eating, they, there is, is more about, I think they, they are eating pork, for example, Okinawan pork is very, very popular and they like the most fatty part of the pork, like the, how do you say the the feet it yeah and it's delicious but they are also eating sweets and they are drinking alcohol now all these things are the, the word we use in the book is balanced there is no excess so when they eat sweets it's not like a big cake we it's like a small piece like this that you can you can have two or three spoons and then you have also uh, you're drinking green tea or uh, san pincha, which is a Japan, uh, Okinawan tea that is jasmine tea mixed with green tea. So you start seeing okay, everyone is drinking the san pincha all the time, and uh, they're drinking the san pincha and they're eating sweets. But we were eating the sweets, Francesca and me, and it's uh, it's not very sweet, and it tastes it tastes a lot like sikwasa, uh, and sikwasa is a citric fruit. That I think Ogimi is the place where they produce the most sikwasa in Japan. It's a citric fruit that is very similar to uh, an orange, but it seems it has something called nobiletin in a much much higher concentrations than any other citrix in the world and there are some studies that they say that this helps this has a great effect to protect you from cancer and many other illnesses what was the name of that fruit again specifically I shikwasa shikwasa we have one page about shikwasa in the book and so you start seeing this like I, I would say small things that might be big and and the, another one is the goya which is bittersweet melon I think is how you translate this is my favorite uh, Okinawan vegetable and it's a long you, you can cook it in many many ways and you find it in many recipes. They they eat it with pork. They eat it with other vegetables. So very balanced. And another thing that we say, like they eat things from 
what they grow around. There, there are no supermarkets in Ogimi. So this guy or this person is growing avocados. This other person is growing uh, tomatoes and lettuce. This person is a, a fisherman. Uh, this, like, and then there is an economy that they share things. There is a market, but everyone is selling to each other. And that's so it's grow, eating things that they are they are able to get from the area, not eating a lot, uh, lots of variety, things from the sea, lot, lots of algae, al, how do you say, seaweeds. Seaweeds, yes. Yeah, lots of seaweeds. It is umi, umi budo. It's a Okinawan yeah, it's seaweed. But they don't, what I wanted to say, they don't, there are many diets now in the US that they say you should absolutely not eat this thing. That very dogmatic. There is nothing dogmatic in Okinawa. Every like they will eat whatever you put in the table. But yeah, so that's what we wanted to. I think we convey that in the book. No, you you do, and I think it's such an important point because there is a diet culture here in the U.S. that demonizes foods or food groups. It can end up being restrictive, and and in my mind, that's not healthy. And I I think to, you know to build off your summary, you know, they eat to eighty percent full. They're not restrictive. They're essentially omnivores, so they they eat everything. Um, but I would say more more vegetable. Like they will tend to more vegetables than the average Japanese. But they still eat pork. There is something important that for them, for for the Japanese, eating meat it doesn't mean the same than eating meat in the Mediterranean and United States. When you go to the United States to eat meat in a restaurant, you get a piece of three hundred grams of half kilo. When when you go to to eat Kobe meat that they consider it's very, very that they consider it's best of the world. This uh, this special cow, uh, it's only maybe fifty grams, one hundred grams, uh, little stripes in a bed of rice and vegetables. And so actually, the proportion of, of grease is very is very small. And in Okinawa, the, the pork is a side dish on some special days. It's not like you're eating like... So the quantities, and this is something that we are not scientists, Francis and me, we, we're... But it is something that if someone would study the Okinawan diet, it would be probably at the end, if you start analyzing, it would be the percentages would be a lot like vegetables and seaweed and fish and much less of yeah, meat, but... Look, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think there is consensus that for most people, meat should not be the main course. It should be the side or, or a condiment in some cases, and that you're never going to go wrong with fruits and vegetables being the main event. And then high-quality, you know, grass-fed, pasture-raised meat, some great wild fish, that's the, the way to go. Something else I wanted to point out is diversity in terms of food is a big staple. And you mentioned some of the, the fruits and vegetables have very high antioxidant levels. And I think it speaks to this larger idea of, you know, they have their vegetable gardens. They're eating, they're not eating a lot of processed food. And this tea, this mad the 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 the, 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 the tea is like magical. Actually, green tea is magical. All the studies done about green tea. This is very antioxidant. Is capturing the free radicals. There are a lot of studies of the effect of green tea and white tea also uh, in, in the aging process of the cells. So. Uh, one additional reason of this longevity could be that uh, Japanese people are drinking, especially in Okinawa and in rural uh, places, they are not drinking coffee. Uh, they are drinking green tea all day. And, and this can be a factor 
that is important too. And what about movement? These people aren't necessarily going to the gym or doing CrossFit. They, they don't need they don't need gym because they work in the garden. They work in the garden every day, and then Hector can explain also the radio show that has a very nice story because it started in the radio and everyone is doing it still now by YouTube. And this is a tradition. Yeah, well, in, in Ogimi, I don't think they have much YouTube, but, but they, they have it on, on Japanese national television. They put in the mornings, there is a radio. It's 10 minutes of, it's basically exercise that it makes you do like very basic movements that even even 100 year old person can do it's very simple movements but that maybe when you start growing old and you're doing nothing you kind of forget it like it's movements that you have to put your your arms above your your head or touch your feet that if you go through a day you there are some movements that we don't need to do and we our body starts forgetting them. So this radio taiso practice is a very they do it in parks also here in Tokyo. Like you go into the morning in the mornings and you see groups of people doing the radio taiso and it's only 10 minutes and you can do it every day. But the name comes because it started in the radio. Yeah, it started from radio, like even yeah, a long it's, time it's ago. It's very similar to Tai Chi, right? It gets some ideas from Tai Chi. For me, it is flexibility exercises to wake up the body in the morning. Also, another point about this is like not forgetting certain movement patterns that your body might forget. And it was designed by a Japanese uh, like health experts to to like okay, what. What is the minimal that we can do to activate the whole body? And another good point in Ogimi, like we saw many people walking from one place to another, but the other big point of Japanese lifestyle, at least in villages in Tokyo now is changing. I'm sitting now in a chair, but in villages there are not, you have to sit down on the floor on the tatami. And when you sit down on the floor in a tatami all the time, I think it has a huge effect. My my father-in-law is almost 80 years old now, but he can get up from the floor and stand without using his hands and without effort because he's always on the floor. He sleeps on the floor. When he goes to the toilet every time, during the day, he has to stand up and sit down on the floor. So he's very used to just doing it in a natural way. Or for example, if you travel around China or Asia, you will see people squatting on the streets. And it seems that they are very comfortable. They can be 20 minutes sitting, like squatting on the street with the smartphone or eating something on the street and they're squatting. That's almost for me. It's impossible. I'm, <laughs> it's like I cannot be, I cannot be twenty minutes of squatting without feeling pain. Yeah, I think it's an important point. Natural movement is so key to our well-being, specifically as we get old. Uh, getting up and down is very critical, and the statistics are, are quite scary. And also, and also being outside, this is very important. The chronobiology says nowadays that you to have a, a long and healthy life, you need that your inner clock is synchronized with the outer clock. That is, this is the sun that is uh, making its movement. So in places like Ogimi, people is uh, waking up with the sun. They go to sleep with the sun. They are most of the day outside so that the light is regulating them also, this time, this inner time to, to live with the sun. And it's also very important because uh, in the cities, people live 90% of the time inside places and you are not even breathing fresh air. And they are 
90% of the time outside. I, I love that. And we, the more we learn about getting outside in the sun, it, it's so critical even in the morning. If you want to sleep well, it starts in the morning, getting morning sunlight. And so in closing, I'm curious from both of your perspectives, what was the most surprising finding while writing this book, whether it was a story or a study, what really stood out to you in this process? For me, it was the philosophy of forgiveness of Okinawa, because when you study the, the history of Okinawa, it was terrible what happened in the Second World War. And also, it's a pl place that is, is the, the poorest prefecture, is the place with the lowest salaries, with less jobs, but they are happy. And they are special, especially happy uh, with the foreigners, with the Americans who live there. So this philosophy of forgiveness, of letting the past back and leaving the present and uh, going away from resentment, this is what impressed me more. Uh, for sure that Hector has a different point of view because he has been living in Japan also almost 20 years. So he has uh, different perspectives. Yeah, for me, for me, I think one that stood out is that when I started doing learning about how bad is retiring and doing nothing for you. Yeah, I, I, I was still in my heart. I was still very Spanish. I was dreaming of, yeah, I don't know if silently quitting, but retiring and doing nothing. But after learning so much about uh, how bad retirement can be for you, I totally changed. I don't want to retire anymore. I want to, <laughs> I want to keep doing things, or at least I will change the name. I will, I will have different faces. Like, okay, this is my face of I will do this, I will do that. I will not call it retirement anymore. It'll be your gardening phase. Yes, it will be my gardening phase. <laughs> I, I, lately, I'm being asked this, like, you're the author of Ikigai, you need a garden. It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> At some point, I will have a garden, maybe with some sequasas. And... Mm -hmm. It would be wonderful. Uh, yeah, we have a common friend, Frances, that when we went the second time to, uh, to Okinawa, Ogimi, we went with National Geographic to record a documentary just before the pandemic hit. Uh, so we had a chance to meet again all the people, not all the people, but many characters that are in the book. Like we met Yuki with Yuki again. And it was very beautiful to at least everyone that we remembered, they were still alive. Like we, we thought, okay, maybe, they <laughs> maybe after... I think it was the second, it was after five years, but we were very lucky that they were still all alive and happy and they remembered us. And they have now our, our book everywhere. And the cameraman that came with us, he sent me a message that he took some seeds of sequasa uh, and he brought them to Spain and he's growing sequasa in Spain now. I, I, I wonder if my friend, I think he's your friend too, Dan Butner of Blue Zones fame, is also doing the same thing these days. He's, he's bringing a sequasa to the United States. Yeah. Well, again, congratulations on Ikigai. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Love, love, love the book. Thank you very much. Have a, a very nice weekend. And thank you for the wonderful interview. Thank you.